This is hell. Live from the United States, where the law has far too often been the crime. This is hell. Capitalism, from its very outset, has been a system of racial exploitation. It depends upon an exploited labor class, and in the United States, that has meant African Americans and the indigenous. Even prior to the United States, this racial capitalism laid the groundwork for global economic supremacy by the U.S. It was also the foundation for the British Empire. The warm relations that exist today are based on a shared history and current understanding of white supremacy. Here in the States, you can look back and find glaring and, yes, bloody and deadly examples of that racial capitalism when African Americans not only pursued but were successful in attaining the American dream. You can find that in race massacres that are far too often labeled race riots in places like the 1921 mass killings on Tulsa's Black Wall Street and in 1919 and in the fields of Elaine, Arkansas, where sharecroppers were machine gunned down by federal troops only two years earlier. To this day, that legacy of race massacres and the continuance of racial capitalism continue to thwart attempts at black liberation and independence in a few minutes, we will have the amazing opportunity to share an unvarnished look at U.S. history and its methodical violence used to enforce the U.S. brand of capitalism when we speak with law scholars Andre Douglas Pond Cummings and Calvin Graham, who will be on to talk about their writing that appeared in the Tulsa Law Review, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, Tulsa's Black Wall Street, and Elaine's Sharecroppers. Dre is associate Dean for Faculty Research and Development at Charles C. Baum Distinguished uh, and Charles C. Baum Distinguished Professor of Law and Co-Director at the Center for Racial Justice and Criminal Justice Reform within the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, William H. Bowen School of Law, J.D. Howard University School of Law. He is co-author of the 2016 book Corporate Justice. Calvin is a member of the class of 2020. 22 at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, also at the William H. Bowen School of Law, and a longtime listener of This Is Hell, who has been very kind to suggest guests who have appeared here on our program in the past. What you're about to hear is likely to be one of the most disturbing yet enlightening conversations we have had here on the show in years, and we are very, very honored to have both Dre and Calvin as today's featured guests. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, anything new by you besides for the disturbing art that is outside the doors of this studio right now? Um, I mean, not much compared to your surgery. I, you know, you have a different body now. I do. <laughs> it's not a, not a totally functioning one yet. Yeah, I do kind of too. I got air conditioning yesterday, so that is new. That's fantastic. <laughs> I was going to give you our air conditioner and then I never mentioned it to you again because <laughs> our air conditioner died. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, well, no worries because I didn't want to bother you anyways with the surgery. And my friend is moving to Georgia and had a couple in storage and she gave them to me. So, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you need two in your place? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I could always use more. I, my place is pretty big so for me, for just me, so I kind of needed both, yeah. Ours is pretty big, too. It's like 1,500 square feet. And so we have a broken down old uh, air conditioner that works 
on and off, and then we have another one in the front room, and the whole place never gets air conditioned. We're going to have, when we're going on vacation, uh, we have people who take care of our cats, and that company insists that you have air conditioning on at all times <laughs> while the cats are there, which is very kind of them to our cats. So in about, as Lindsay was just saying, in about seven hours, I will be laying on my back without any anesthesia while my surgeon uses medical pliers to pull 35 staples out of my belly. And I will be honest, I'm incredibly scared of this procedure, not only about the pain I'm about to experience, but also that my surgeon may tell me I have an infection and further medical procedures will be needed in my four-month nightmarish odyssey to correct a chronic condition that has forced me to miss dozens of shows over the last 15 years. Like I said earlier this week, I'm freaking out. But more importantly than more important than my continued freak out, uh, Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? I like the implication there by Seb that uh, we all have a monotheism that we follow. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Lindsay will have more of your answer to the more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our talk with Dre and Calvin. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want, the this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering and the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not have any commercial sponsors. We do not want any commercial sponsors. We do not take any foundation money. We do not want any foundation money. Both would suggest that we have some sort of conflict of interest, and we do not even want the perception of a conflict of interest. And we don't profit enough to actually afford to be a not-for-profit. So... We need your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. And we will have we will announce this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, constructive or even destructive criticism, if you'd like, at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we will likely read your email on air. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest we're going to get to more of your email tomorrow on tomorrow's show on the upcoming shows as well but uh, we got an email from cj who writes hello this is hell hello cj we uh, she she writes my husband is a huge fan and i would love for us to visit y'all and for him to see y'all live I saw that y'all are in limbo. Uh, this is she wrote this last week when we were doing some airing some best of shows because I was still laid up in the hospital. I saw that y'all are in limbo, and I hope everything is going okay. Sending good vibes. Anyway, if there's any way to let me know scheduling in September, I see that you usually record at WNUR on Monday through Wednesday. We hail from Salem, Oregon, and I'll need to plan that trip around those days. Is there a way for me to keep track of when you will be recording? Also, is there a way for my husband to meet you in person? We are fully vaccinated and can bring cards and wear masks. 
These past years have been rough, but my husband has always been a solid rock for me to lean on. I know meeting you and the crew would be a dream come true for him, and I want to give him the very best. But enough nonsense. Thanks for all that y'all do, and I uh, love listening to y'all in the early morning. It's my husband's routine to listen to your podcast and make us coffee. Hope things are looking better, and hope to hear from you soon, CJ. So a few things, CJ. Uh, first, we no longer record at WNUR, FM 89.3, Chicago's sound experiment, but at our own studio above a bar called Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Second, the fact that you'd be willing to come all the way from Salem, Oregon uh, to meet us, that's, that's amazing. Not that you'd be the first visitors to visit or listeners to visit in us all the way from Oregon. Hat tip to Francesco, who dropped by pre-pandemic. Third, saying that you would wear masks and are vaccinated is very considerate of you and your husband. You both should be commended for your thoughtfulness toward others. That lack of selfishness is in short supply nowadays under neoliberalism, so thank you for your consideration towards others. Finally, as I told CJ, she and everyone listening can meet me as well as the entire crew of This Is Hell and past guests here on This Is Hell, who often attend, at our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which is happening during summer's final weekend on Saturday, September 17th. There will be food, live music, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and we will have the closing of This Is Art, the art show that accompanies each and every one of our anniversary parties, featuring art by artists who are either listeners of This Is Hell or were suggested by listeners, as this is, as always, a listener appreciation party. So I replied to CJ telling her just that, and she wrote back, Oh my God, yes, is there anything I need to do to sign up or an offering of drinks and snacks? I'll start planning our next adventure right now. He's going to be so excited. Thank you. CJ, you don't have to uh, do anything but bring yourselves and hang out with us on Saturday, September 17th. And I'm starting to realize I may have ruined a surprise for your husband, CJ. And if I did, my apologies. Again, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we will likely read your email on air. As I was saying before, Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Dre and Calvin on racial capitalism and the Tulsa and Elaine massacres. Coming up, like I said, Dre and Calvin on racial capitalism and race massacres. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again. What is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? We'll also have This Week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. And today we're commemorating a very important date in the history of This Is Hell and my broadcasting on WNUR. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. Live from late capitalism where property has always had more rights than people. This is hell, and that has never been proven more clearly than through racial capitalism, the race massacres it has spawned. Sure, last year you may have seen news coverage of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Black Wall Street massacre, but this year, nothing. And back in 2019, there was definitely no memorialization of the race massacre of sharecroppers in Elaine, Arkansas, which took place 100 years earlier in 1919. 
Here to explain what those race massacres and countless more in U.S. history that have been forgotten have in common, law scholars Andre Douglas Pond, Cummings, and Calvin Graham co-authored the Tulsa Law Review article, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacres, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's Sharecroppers. First, Dre, welcome to This Is Hell. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invite and best wishes on uh, your upcoming surgeries. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, And Dre, I just got to say, as well as to Calvin, this really just is outstanding writing. And everybody who has an opportunity to find the Tulsa Law Review article, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, they should definitely read this article. Calvin, wow, what a pleasure. Welcome to This Is Hell. Chuck, this is a bit of a dream come true, so I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you for dropping by Carrie's Lounge during the uh, pandemic and dropping off the uh, issue of the Tulsa Law Review. I was not in good enough shape to be here, but thank you very much. I really appreciate it. How did you like Carrie's? I loved it. Uh, it was a great time. I got a um, alert for all my friends that hadn't had it before and forced them to uh, try to enjoy it and got a, a fancy Malort temporary tattoo in exchange. <laughs> You're kidding me. That's great. That's really great. That's awesome. So how did you like Malort? Uh, I had uh, unfortunately had it before, um, <laughs> and as a good friend of mine described it, it tastes like uh, pencil shavings and motor oil. Wow, that is exactly what it tastes like. For some reason, my girlfriend likes that taste, and I got to start uh, questioning my girlfriend's taste in liquor all of a sudden. So, Dre, let's start with you. Your your in Calvin articles. Your article starts by reminding us that United States history is marked and checkered with grievous race massacres dating back to the end of slavery. These race riots, as they are benignly referred to in some quarters, occurred infamously in Tulsa, Elaine, Arkansas, Rosewood, Florida, Chicago, Detroit, and so many other lesser-remembered cities. And especially, you know, in the area shortly after, in the era shortly after World War One. First, uh, Dre, what is missed in our understanding of these events when they are called race riots? Because when searching on any of these massacres or as they are uh, sometimes called uprisings, the first Google entries are always mentioning them as riots. So what are we misled to believe when they are labeled as race riots and not race massacres? That's a great question, Chuck, and it's really nefarious. Um, in in uh, Greenwood, Oklahoma, on Black Wall Street, all of the businesses that were burned down by an angry white mob were all insured. Um, so, you know, I don't want to besmirch any modern insurers, but if you were to imagine State Farm or Allstate or other companies that were insuring those businesses, um, if you categorize a race massacre or a or a raising of a city as a riot, suggesting that there's actual fighting back, that there's two sides fighting, it allows the insurance companies to escape any um, responsibility or liability for those companies that were burned to the ground. And so as we'll talk more today, Chuck, and sort of talk about how these how racial capitalism and race massacres have just really handicapped African-Americans historically in the United States. The the particular specification of the city of Tulsa calling it a riot um, meant that through, through today, 2022, not a single black business that was insured in 1921 has ever had that claim paid. Um, and 
you know, one of uh, one of the famous lawyers in Greenwood, uh, in on Black Wall Street at the time, put up a tent and and had all of the the black business owners come in and fill out their claim forms for their insurance companies so that they could rebuild Black Wall Street. And the insurance companies in 1921 denied every single claim because they they essentially said that it was a riot uh, rather than a massacre. And so we're not responsible because there was some sort of culpability on the part of the black entrepreneurs that were uh, that were wiped out during Black Wall Street. And I, and I think most people don't don't remember that. Um, having visited Black Wall Street uh, last year, um, Calvin and I were both there uh, in Tulsa. You know, it's it's a it's a shadow of what it used to be, um, and it used to be the city center of the United States for Black businesses. It was amazing, and it has just been handicapped and kneecapped since that time. So that's what's missing: is calling it a riot allows um, both state governments and insurance companies to escape liability and responsibility for for the devastation that they caused. And Calvin, in the article that you wrote with Dre, uh, you state that this quashing of early African-American economic success, particularly on Tulsa's Black Wall Street and in the fields of Elaine, Arkansas, sent shockwaves of oppression that still reverberate today. So last year, Calvin, as you well know, major TV networks, news broadcasts, and cable TV news outlets brought a great deal of attention to the Tulsa Race Massacre on its 100th anniversary. This year, however, there was barely a mention, if any mention at all. What do we miss, Calvin, when the Elaine Race Massacre, which destroyed the lives and fortunes of Arkansas sharecroppers, is not memorialized in a similar fashion by the major TV outlets when Tulsa is singled out for memorialization? I think one thing, um, as as we've heard from other guests, uh, I've heard from other guests on the show in the past, is a, there's an emphasis there on property and destruction of property um, that I think is interesting because that is so lacking from the Elaine uprising, which was, um, you know, described as an uprising to similarly point blame at the sharecroppers who were simply attempting to unionize during a time when cotton prices were at an all-time high. And I think similarly, that's another reason why it likely gets less coverage is because it starts to dip into labor issues um, that major networks don't typically enjoy covering. And Dre, you write that capitalism, much of the world's current economic system, possesses a long storied and oft-times sordid history. Indeed, the 16th and 17th century origin story of capitalism is often clouded and mystified when narrated typically favoring uh, expansive generalizations and superlatives describing innovation, markets, invention, credit, trade, money systems, interchangeable parts, steam power, and the like. What is often ignored and forgotten historically is the story of the millions of lives that were shattered in service of innovation, markets, invention, trade, interchangeable parts, and the like. As the transition from feudalism to early capitalism literally crushed millions of human beings, most often persons of color, with many of those effects still felt and relevant today. Dre, when capitalism's rise is only described within those generalizations and superlatives, it makes capitalism appear as not only benevolent, but harmless, an evolutionary step, a natural step that lifted all boats. What happens, Dre, when we do not recognize how the cost for capitalism, for industrialization, 
was the crushing of millions of human beings, most often persons of color. I think what struck Calvin and I the most, Chuck, was the fact that these that 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 these consequences continue today. Is that you know we talk a lot in the article about echoes, and when you know when we think about capitalism and the American or the United States economy as the world's greatest economy. Um, we just that you know we we talk about innovation we talk in superlatives without ever really fully recognizing the fact that the black americans lives were literally crushed in service to capitalism and indigenous peoples and other people of color um were just were just trampled in 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 this sort of you know white supremacist ascent to global superiority um, and I think what we miss when we don't really recognize the fact that, you know, capitalism and the wealth that we've been able to generate in the United States was built on the backs of black and brown Americans is the fact that we miss the echoes, we miss the reverberations. It just, it's just painful to think about the fact that, you know, so many African-American, indigenous, um, Latinx populations still struggle today, um, though, you know, Hopefully we'll get into this later. We talked about the racial wealth gap. Um, you know, we talked about the 2008 financial market crisis. Who suffered the most 100 years later is still black and brown Americans. And so what we're missing are, are, is the fact that, that the, you know, the crushing in 1919 and 1921 of black lives um, is still felt today. And, you know, paying homage to capitalism Ignoring those things ignores the fact that we that we have reparations, we have repairing, we have economic opportunities to try to find and develop for those populations. And in your writing, you also point towards January 6th, which we will also touch on in a little bit. A couple of questions for you, Calvin. Just one at first as a follow-up to what Dre was just saying. So is this the history that those who inaccurately use the phrase critical race theory is this the history that those white supremacists and those people who embrace white privilege do not want to be taught in our public education system? Is this the history that they don't want to have taught because it shows the real origins of the United States? Yeah, I certainly think that it is, you know, really a large degree of it is probably just being uncomfortable with the messy history behind how the United States economy came to be the largest in the world and how white Americans have been the primary beneficiaries of it. Um, and I think contextualizing that rise and contextualizing, um, you know, how, how those people obtained the wealth that they obtained gets really uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, but that context is so important to understanding why things are the way they are. And, you know, part of what I was um, kind of floating around in my head when writing this article, too, was that so much of this isn't just missing from, you know, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, which are typically the focus of news programs. But even in my law school program, um, laws just kind of exist in this ether um, and are completely kind of detached from any historical context. And I think giving context to how even our legal institutions came to be developed um, and kind of breaking that down is just as important as understanding the events themselves. 
So, Calvin, uh, you and Dre also write that to founding theorist Cedric Robinson, racial capitalism necessarily implicates the fact that the development, organization, and expansion of capitalist society pursued essential racial directions, and that, quote, the historical development of world capitalism was influenced in a most fundamental way by the particularistic uh, forces of racism and nationalism. Is that where we find ourselves today, Calvin, in your opinion, in a battle over racism and national nationalism that are necessary for capitalism to not only succeed, but continue and thrive? I think to some degree that certainly has to be the case, um, particularly when we see those same forces um, playing out events like January 6th and just in battles over critical race theory and education in schools. Um, but also just understanding those forces historically and, you know, quoting quite a bit throughout the article from from Gerald Horn's work, just capitalism's early development and or just early economic development in the United States needed a way to bring together all of these disparate um, European groups who back in Europe were all at war with each other and creating an other that could unite those Europeans who would otherwise be killing each other. And in many cases probably were coming to, um, to the Americas, having been veterans of those conflicts, um, they needed something to, to come together, to work together or else the colonies would never and did never survive. So Dre, a couple questions for you. Does capitalism then need exploitation to thrive? And is that the history that those supporting or in denial of uh, white supremacy and white privilege want to be written out of our textbooks and removed from our uh, schools as well as the public uh, imagination? That capitalism depends upon exploitation. And does it depend upon, I mean, does it really depend upon that exploitation? Can there be a non-exploitative capitalism? Yeah, such a great question, Chuck. Uh, I tend to want to believe that there is an American dream and that capitalism can be fairly um, can be fairly distributed. Uh, if you think about Black Wall Street, um, and I want to talk about O.W. Gurley for just a second and J.B. Stratford, two of the founders of Greenwood. Um, you know, both of those men, African-American entrepreneurs, played by the rules of capitalism. They, you know, um, started businesses, they pursued the American dream, they owned property, they became very successful. Um, I think that at one point in time, O.W. Gurley uh, was worth, you know, over $5 million in US in $2022, and Stratford's hotel uh, was worth like $2.5 million. And in playing by the rules of American capitalism, they found success. And I think, I think that that if there's hope to our article, it's the fact that these, a good idea and, you know, the right opportunity, you can, you can make your way here in the United States. You can find success under capitalism if fairly meet, if fairly distributed or fairly meted out. Um, but in this particular instance, and I want to be really clear here, um, you know, because of, a because some World War I veterans wanted to protect a falsely accused black man um, and went and circled the jail uh, armed to ensure that a white mob didn't lynch um, the falsely accused black man. We had this sort of riot, uh, riot's not the right word, we had this sort of chaos breakout 
um, where hundreds of black people were killed and a, and, and a handful of white people were killed. And the entire black business district, including homes, were burned to the ground. So my point here is that is that O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford should have been should have been the first Oprah Winfrey's. They should have been the first, you know, billionaires in the United States because they had they had pursued the American dream, found success in it. But the point of our article, and in answer to your question, Chuck, is that white America would not stand for it. It would not stand for uh, the American dream of financial success being allowed to to develop and it hasn't really been allowed to develop until the 20th and 21st centuries and so i do think this is the history that those that oppose critical race theory want to want to whitewash i just don't think that that the the folks that that argue you know this is not a racist state or this is not a racist country really want to whitewash the fact that that we have just destroyed black opportunity, black wealth, persons of colors, opportunities who were playing by the capitalist rules. So I, I'm, I hope that we can get to a place where capitalism can be practiced fairly and economic opportunity can be available to all, but that has still not been the case up through today. And Dre, you and Calvin also cite law scholar Nancy Leong writing in Racial Capitalism, quote, racial capitalism makes manifest the capitalistic success White-owned wealth and property was built on the backs of these of those exploited minority populations, including through slavery, involuntary servitude, manifest destiny, and oppression. If racial capitalism involves the process of deriving economic and social value from the racial identity of another, then historian Gerald Horn demonstrates the exploitative utility of this framework when writing that London was a prime beneficiary beneficiary of this systemic cruelty. So it's not just the American empire that was built on this cruelty, but also the British empire. Just uh, as Calvin was mentioning earlier, historian Gerald uh, Horn, he's been on our show several times. And next week, uh, Dre, he will be on to discuss his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dre, do you see a through line from racial capitalism to U.S. fascism? And can fascism and its rise today in the United States be addressed without discussing racial capitalism. Oh, so interesting. So I wanted to back up just a step and I'll get to that question, Chuck. You know, one of the things that we write about in the article is the fact that the success of, you know, white billionaires um, is generated because of, you know, uh, smarts, good fortune, you know, in, innovation, good decision making. And it's never, especially the, the you know, the wealth and de- dealing with the accumulation of property, it's never recognized that that, that wealth was generated on the backs of, um, you know, black and brown labor and the crushing of, you know, the labor, the black and brown labor that we talked about earlier in the show. And so, you know, I, I think that's the story. I think that's the story that, that, opponents of critical race theory want to get out there is that it's a meritocracy. If you're smart enough and you work hard enough, you're going to be able to be successful. And everyone that's a billionaire today has worked hard and been smart and been successful without recognizing the fact that capitalism has been and has always been 
uh, built on the backs of the labor class and particularly uh, black and brown people in the United States. I do think there's a through line. I, I think I think those that that um, sent it on the Capitol on January 6th, um, you know, I think it's I think there's a feeling after the George Floyd protests that 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 white supremacy is 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 you know sort of perhaps this is hopeful but but at its last grasp um and i felt like the insurrection uh were you know the individuals that are not wanting an america of equal opportunity sort of the the grasp of the last vestige of white supremacy are those that storm the Capitol on January 6th. And so I do think there's the through line that you suggested between racial capitalism and fascism. So Calvin, how, how aware do you think those who support the current U.S. style of ca- capitalism, this late stage capitalism, or even the earlier stage of capitalism, how aware do you think they are that cruelty and barbarism are necessary for its success? I think to some degree, deep down, everybody knows it, um, whether that's just seeing, um, seeing the impoverished on one's drive to work or interacting with those that work for minimum wage when they're out to eat or getting groceries. And I, th- I think that reveals itself just in the backlash to seeking to discuss the history um, and teach the history in schools. Um, I think deep down that kind of reveals that at one's core, um, most are aware of it and are uncomfortable with it because it means to some degree that their success and their wealth and their comfort above all um, are dependent on the suffering of people that they know and interact with um, probably on a regular basis and um, for many, those that they employ. And um, I think I think it would be um, a, a bit silly to assume that they're not aware of it to some degree, especially those that do own businesses and um, see their their wealth increasing while wages remain stagnant. So, Kellen, as uh, Dre was mentioning earlier, Greenwood, that's the area where Tulsa Black, uh, T- Tulsa's Black Wall Street was. Uh, Greenwood pioneer business owners O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford, together with thousands of visionary black residents, established a self-reliant, self-contained, black-owned city center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, Calvin, from the view of the white supremacists behind the massacre, was the greatest offense that money did stay within Black Wall Street, that African-Americans were straying from racial capitalism and its exploitation from which white supremacists had profited and built their wealth? Was Black Wall Street a threat to white wealth and white power? Um, Dre may be able to to speak a little bit more on that, but I think to some degree that that has to be the case, Um, not necessarily solely for the racial issue, but just because the modus operandi of the system is to view any dollar that isn't coming into uh, one business as, you know, a a lost profit to some degree. And having that competition and having that competition be so self-contained, I think is is viewed as a threat to profits. Dre, just to follow up on that, was the Tulsa Black Wall Street massacre then a message from white supremacists that African-Americans could not escape white oppression even after the Civil War, could not escape racial capitalism? 
I think that was surely the message, Chuck. And you know, I want to I want to point something out that was really striking to Calvin and I in writing this article, which is that in 1907, Oklahoma, um, I think I have my date right, it was 1906, 1907, uh, was given statehood or or achieved statehood, and one of the first legislative enactments it did was to institute segregation. Right, and so you have O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford and Smitherman and others moving into Tulsa in the early 1900s, and and it's and and it's seen as a as a potential place where you could go and find success as a black entrepreneur, and then suddenly you're segregated, um, which which I think uh, Gurley and Stratford felt like was an opportunity created for them. So imagine going into the white stores in Tulsa, and being you know you know wanting to buy clothing. And being told that you couldn't try it on, right? Because they didn't want their clothing touching the black skin of the customers, or going into a restaurant in Tulsa and being told that you know you had to sit, you know, in the black section or in the back. And so one of the things that struck Calvin and I in writing the article is that many of these early entrepreneurs were like, "Well, we don't need Tulsa. Let's create our own clothing stores. Let's create our own restaurants. Let's create our own doctors' offices and lawyers' offices, so that we don't need to go into Tulsa because they don't want us anyway. They don't." that they might want our dollar, but they don't want our physical presence in, in their stores and in their um, offices and what have you. And so when, you know, one of the things that, that Black Wall Street was famous for was that a, that a dollar bill would turn over like 30 times before it left the community, meaning self-reliant, self-entrepreneurial. Um, um, uh, self the, the, the folks in, in Greenwood and in Black Wall Street, I think said, we don't need white business. We don't need white America. We can do this ourselves. And for that, they paid dearly. And I think that you're exactly right, Chuck, that, that you know, white supremacy and capitalism just said, you know, you don't get what we get, uh, Black Americans. You don't, if, if you find success, we will take it from you. We will crush it from you. And we can't, and they did. And I wanna be really clear here too. Calvin brought this up. It was the state. It, there, were, there were airplanes dropping kerosene bombs on Greenwood, and there was artillery left over from the World War that was turned by the Tulsa State um, Guard onto Greenwood. This was the state attacking their own citizens, as, um, as uh, we describe in the article. And so this was the state attacking their own citizens and and, and suffering no consequence or repercussion for doing so. And so I think we have to look at that, as you suggest, as a way of, of, of white supremacy saying, uh, we, we will not allow this. And I, I, I found that really fascinating, Dre, that, that segregation was seen as a protection uh, against the violence of integration with uh, white peoples. I, I've just found that really fascinating in uh, your and Calvin's writing. So, Dre, were Gurley and Stratford attempting to create a kind of exploitation, or kind of, sorry, capitalism that was not racially exploitative? And is that non-exploitative capitalism possible? Uh, that's such a good question. And, and uh in our in my corporate justice book um it's a course that i teach chuck where where we try and grapple with that question is there a way to practice capitalism that works for everybody that's fair that's just that gives economic opportunity to all people all races if you have an idea and you have some um, capital behind it 
you know, can, can you achieve? And what if J.B. Stratford's great-grandsons is a great um, uh, John Rogers that's uh, right there with you, Chuck, in Chicago. He runs one of the most successful hedge funds in the United States, Black-owned, great-grandson or great-great-grandson of J.B. Stratford. And we quote him in the article several times saying, just take the knee off our neck and watch what we do. We're, you know, his, his grandfather did it. He's done it. Um, and so, yes, O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford and Smitherman and others were, were saying this can, capitalism can work. It can be fair. It doesn't need to exploit. It doesn't need to crush. Um, just support good ideas, good businesses, good inventions. Give us an opportunity. O.W. Gurley gave loans to people that moved to Tulsa so they could start their own businesses. It was smart. He was giving opportunity to black folks that were looking for the opportunities, probably, not probably, collected interest on those loans, interest that made sense for him to make money and the new entrepreneurs to make money. I think you're exactly right that this was, that, that this is proof, that this is evidence that it can be, capitalism can work if we just, if we remove the discrimination, the white supremacy, the exploitation and allow, and allow it to thrive. But white supremacists seem to only want racial capitalism, which is what your article describes. We are speaking with law scholars Andre Douglas Pond Cummings and Calvin Graham about their co-authored article in the Tulsa Law Review, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's Sharecroppers. Calvin, you, Andre, write with the enormous success of Black Wall Street and the Greenwood neighborhood's black citizenry, Tulsa's white re residents, particularly those that were poor, began taking offense, noting the upscale lifestyle of their fellow African-American uh, city dwellers and they, who they deemed inferior. So Calvin, was Tulsa more a racially motivated massacre or a class motivated massacre or were the two intertwined or how would how would you describe it if it comes down to the issue of race or class i think they're inseparable at a certain point and that's um you know to a degree what we're doing by looking at this history through the lens of racial capitalism is that there's not really an easy way to separate them because they've they've been intertwined um for so long and been so close. And this plays out in, in Elaine as well, where um, even, even prior to the unionization efforts um, of the sharecroppers, because cotton was so profitable after World War I, um, black land ownership was increasing and there were, um, there were beginnings of a, a black planter class rather than um, simply black sharecroppers working for white planters. And this frightened the plantation owners in Phillips County enough to where um, they started trying to implement travel bans and um, really stoked fears of an uprising to the point where uh, it essentially became a self-fulfilling prophecy that the atrocity occurred. And uh, Calvin, also uh, you write that a group of armed black men, including veterans of the World War, this is in the Tulsa Black Wall Street uh, massacre, marched to the jail where a person had been inaccurately and uh, unlawfully accused of a crime, marched to the jail to physically protect the person who had been arrested, Rowland. Despite efforts by O.W. Gurley and others to maintain peace, a scuffle broke out, shots were fired, and a little after 10 p.m., 
a full-scale riot descended. By 5 a.m. on June 1, 1921, the white mob assault on Black Wall Street had begun. Calvin, in any way could the Tulsa massacre be blamed on that tactic of, of violence, violent response? Because those who may preach nonviolence might see this as a failure of violent activism. I, I don't think that would be necessarily a fair description. I think that it's more of a, a, a an instance of attempted self-defense to prevent a lynching from a, an inev- nearly inevitable lynching from occurring. Um, and these were men who had served their country. Um, the veterans, at least, had served overseas and uh, felt like you know they were entitled to do the same thing that they saw, um, or not the same thing, but take take up arms in defense of their community against um, forces that were operating outside of the law, but with the state's support, a state that they had served and died for overseas. Dre, moving on to what took place in Elaine, Arkansas, you write that in the Delta alone, the Delta Mississippi Delta region, population reached 71,631 uh, 61% black people by 1840, and 177,887, 72% black people in 1860. And the region produced millions of pounds of the nation's total 250 million pounds of cotton in 1859. So was, Dre, was, was slavery then also a program of apartheid, of minority rule? And if so, why are those who support so-called Southern heritage not only forced to defend slavery, but defend apartheid? Yeah, that's a great question. I wanted to to respond quickly to the Black War veterans in Tulsa, and then I'll just make a quick comment and lob the rest of that question to Calvin, who's more the Elaine expert than I. But the thing that, that I think is really important is that in you know 1921, we had thousands of Black War veterans that had served the country and had been told by the Army you know, that they were you know, citizens fully vested. And these black war veterans came home to find, you know, segregation, just a, a, just a, just a harsh drum. Um, and, I, and I would imagine that for those black war veterans coming home from having, you know, successfully represented the United States in the first world war, they, 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 they believed that they had earned the right to say, you cannot kill us in the United States. And so, you know, there was a a famous black newspaper called the Tulsa Star in Greenwood that was pretty activist and it would talk about, it would report on the lynchings that were happening throughout Oklahoma and throughout the South. And the black war veterans of Tulsa, um, they they decided, you know, not on my watch. Uh, You you know, we are going to ensure that that, you know, if Dick, Dick Rowland was accused of sexual assault for, for simply bumping into a white woman on an elevator, um, you know, if Dick Rowland was going to get his day in court, he was not going to get murdered by a white mob. And so to that point, these black war veterans surrounded the courthouse and just said, you may not pass, basically. Um, and a, a gathering white mob just kept it growing larger and larger. I think it's important in answer to your question about nonviolence to recognize that thousands of white mobsters surrounded a jailhouse that was being protected by a couple of hundred of black war veterans, um, which, which, you know, turned into this sort of horrifying massacre where the state turned its violence upon citizens 
of Greenwood. Moving to Elaine now, um, and you know, the sort of idea of racial capitalism and slavery, as you mentioned, and, and um, Southern heritage, I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, these sharecroppers were A, necessary um, to, to this record-breaking uh, cotton harvest, uh, B, sort of recognized their economic necessity and decided that they could leverage their importance into some rights for themselves by unionizing and also recognizing that they needed to, as, as black uh, sharecroppers, they needed to, they needed to unionize because they weren't welcome in the white uh, sharecroppers unions. And so in their own seeking of overturning racial capitalism by leveraging rights and recognizing that, that, the, share, that the entire sharecropping system left them in debt while the owners of the cotton fields were raking in record profits, that this would be an opportunity for them to leverage that into an opportunity to gain some rights to sort of disrupt racial capitalism. And we see in both Tulsa, just to bring the through line, we see in both Tulsa and Elaine that the, that the, that the white wealth, the white supremacy was not going to allow uh, this equality, at least not at that point in time in American history. And so both instances left um, murdered uh, black Americans and devastated uh, businesses and communities. And it's that's a really important point that both of you make, and that is that Southern wealth post-Civil War, uh, so-called post-slavery, still depended on racial capitalism for decades and centuries still to come. Uh, Calvin, you and Dre also write, no one knows who fired the first shot when it comes to Elaine. No one uh, fires, no one knows who fires the first shot on the night of September 30th. But soon the small church in Hopspur was riddled with bullet holes and a white agent for the Missouri Pacific Railroad was found dead in a car. By 8.30 the next morning, deputized posses of white men began combing the town of Elaine for the black sh sharecroppers with, quote, the understanding that they would shoot the Negroes as they came to them. By 12.30, Arkansas Governor Charles Bro responded to Phillips County's call for help by wiring Newton Baker, U.S. War Secretary, to tell him that four white men had been killed. Black people in the area were preparing an attack and that he requested authorization to mobilize troops from Camp Pike in Little Rock. So, Calvin, was there a sense that the United States had not only not lived up to its promise, and considering how white supremacy had become the norm in U.S. governance as well as in the military, as you point out, when uh, black troops went to go fight in World War One, they did not fight under U.S. commanders. They fought under French commanders. So why believe the U.S. would ever keep its promise when African Americans returned home from World War One? What gave them any sense of optimism, optimism considering the circumstance they faced prior to the war and during the war, as well as when African-American soldiers returned home. Why did they feel like they actually could unionize and fight for their right to be not exploited labor? Um, I think to a large degree, a lot of it is, as, as you pointed out, um, the fact that they did serve under French commanders who saw them as um, as human and as, as equal and as... Um, soldiers in the same way that uh, white French soldiers were soldiers and white U.S. troops were soldiers. Um, and I think that sense of empowerment, that sense of equality, um, particularly being attached to a uniform to some degree, um, 
led many veterans to feel that they were they were empowered and were entitled to that same treatment that they saw white veterans receiving um, and utilizing their their training and um, their just knowledge of self-defense um, further added to that and it's interesting that both in Elaine and in Tulsa it's it's black veterans um, seeking to defend what they rightly viewed as their their rights um, in the United States. Um, but I think too to to the question, uh, there is an undercurrent of uncertainty um, that they would be treated with that same equality, um, viewed simply by the fact that they they did keep their arms and they were willing to bear them to defend those rights. Just to follow up on that, Calvin, uh, when it comes to Elaine, hearing of the arrival of the federal troops, many sharecroppers there crowded to the highway and were marched to Elaine to be held in stockades until their employers could come and vouch for their innocence. West of town, a group of black sharecroppers who had been attacked that morning were much more hesitant to surrender. And quote, when four men were flushed from a small copse of trees, they frantically fired off a couple of shots as they fled down the road. Although the bullets whizzed harmlessly by the troops and the governor riding in a car had now been shot at. In response, the soldiers shot to kill, laying down a field of fire from rifles and machine guns and moving methodically from patch of woods to patch of woods and field to field. By about noon, the initial clearing was finished. The troops had shot them down like rabbits, in quotes, as one soldier later boasted. Some reports from the time claim the soldiers alongside uh, posse men killed unarmed black people, including women and children, as they moved from cabin to cabin all afternoon. Elsewhere, troops encountered, surrounded, and by many accounts, cleanse the woods and cane breaks of all those hiding within. So, Calvin, this sounds like a wholesale slaughter by not only vigilante posses, but by federal troops. Considering the amount of deadly violence, considering the federal support for a race massacre, is it any surprise that only two years later there was a race massacre in Tulsa that went unchecked by the state? Should have the people in Tulsa been surprised by the reaction of the uh, federal government? Um, uh, I think to some degree hindsight is is twenty twenty here, particularly because the events in Elaine were so quickly uh, whitewashed and the, the degree of the atrocity really was not well known until re- more more recent years. You know, the, um, the colonel in charge of the machine gun battalion, um, in his official report, he reported only 22 black people were killed. But... Um, current estimates are at, at minimum 237 that have been identified, and there are still, you know, longstanding, as with Tulsa, longstanding um, allegations of mass graves with thousands, potentially thousands killed. But that official report declaring only 22 killed, as well as the way that it was reported even in national media, including the New York Times at the time, was that this was an, a socialist uprising. Um, that was rightfully put down, that this was some revolutionary action that the state had to respond to and not as a a racially motivated massacre. And so I don't know that it's necessarily fair to put that on, um, on Black Wall Street and on Tulsa, given the way that it was portrayed at the time. Um, Whereas, you know, now we have, we do have a much clearer picture of what actually occurred. So, Calvin, just to follow up on that, because you used the word socialism, is socialism either a dog whistle or some sort of code word for racial capitalism? 
or a I fight don't, against racial capitalism, I should say? I, I don't know necessarily that it's a, a dog whistle, but it certainly at the time, and especially in Elaine, was used that way to drum up fears, not just of um, black union growth or the formation of a black sharecroppers union, but that this was tied to deeper concerns at the time. Um, this is 1919. Um, the Russian Revolution is still very much at the forefront of national conversation and everyone's mind. And so by linking linking the racial fears of um, racist plantation owners in the South to their concerns about losing that wealth, not just to um, the fact that they're they would be paying more wages to their sharecroppers, but that potentially that wealth would be redistributed by um, some sort of revolution at their at their back door. I think really um, really led to a deep seated fear. And the second there was any hint um, that that could be occurring, uh, which in this case occurred with a gunshot outside of a church um, housing a union meeting, um, that was all that it took to ignite those fears and provoke a uh, wholesale slaughter. Dre, uh, you and Calvin also write that when capitalism is practiced by white Americans, is similarly, similarly engaged by uh, black Americans, and when those African-American entrepreneurs and business owners are successful, then that success has historically been ripped from the hands and lives of those same practitioners. Greenwood's mm-hmm. Black Wall Street was the very model of capitalistic success, a self-contained, self-reliant community of hardworking entrepreneurs. This community could and should have been held up as a model for unfettered achievement and potential. Yet this success disrupted the racial hierarchy that had been developed to justify the very purpose of racial capitalism. When black Americans played by the rules of the U.S. capitalistic society and succeeded, they were destroyed. Black Wall Street proves this. Rosewood, Florida proves this. Elaine, Arkansas proves this. The Red Summer of 1919 proves this. The Chicago race riots prove this. This is the story of America. So, Dre, this gives me great concern for those involved in projects like Cooperation Jackson and past guests on our show, Ajamu Nanguaya and Kali Akuno, who were on our show back in 2018 to discuss their book, Jackson Rising, the Struggle for Economic Democracy and Black Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi. So, Dre, how much fear do you have that the movement within which they participate will face a similar, but not necessarily the exact same fate, but a similar fate? Yeah, that's tough. Um, So a note of pessimism and then a note of optimism. We talk about the echoes a lot in the article, Chuck, and one of the echoes I think it can can be um, can be seen in Stacey Abrams' sort of magisterial uh, voting rights campaign in Georgia, where she narrowly loses as governor a few years ago, but but sees the successful seating of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock as United States senators in the state of Georgia, and the state of Georgia going blue for the first time in, I don't know, 25 or 30 years. And white America sees that Stacey Abrams has successfully mobilized black voters in the state of Georgia to the extent that they that they elect to, uh, you know, the, it, its first black senator, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and then John Ossoff, also a Democrat, and and they start changing the rules. White America starts changing the rules. But well, we've seen a black woman find amazing 
success. And instead of celebrating the fact that Stacey Abrams was able to mobilize voters in, an, in, an, in a never before seen fashion, the rules change, the rules of the game change so that that success, rather than being celebrated, is eviscerated or destroyed, much like much like Black Wall Street, you know, playing by the rules, finding success by the rules, and then either wiping out those successes or changing the rules of the game. And one of those echoes we're seeing today, we'll see if Stacey Abrams is able to, 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 um, to become the governor of Georgia. We'll see if Rafa Warnock will win re-election against Herschel Walker, who by all accounts is a terrible candidate to be United States Senator. Um, but, you know, that's the note of pessimism is that the rules change, is that those in power change the rules. The, the note of optimism is that it feels to me, my hope is, and to your you know, former guests that are doing really extremely important work on economic opportunity, is that these are the last vestiges. These are the last grasps. Frederick Douglass said something like, you know, power will never be given. It must be seized from those, you know, out of the hands of those that control it. Um, that was a, a very bad paraphrase, but 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 uh, Frederick Douglass said something like that. And my my thinking is, my hope is, is that the insurrection and that all of these sort of desperate attempts to change voting rights are are the last are the last gasps of white supremacy. That there are more of us that believe in economic opportunity and equality than there are that believe in white supremacy. And, and while the white supremacists, those that believe in black inferiority are loud and, and, and are armed and storming Capitol buildings, um, I just, I have to continue to think that there are more of us that believe in equality. The George Floyd protest, being out amongst the protesters helps me believe that the, the rainbow coalition of those of us that believe in equality is more um, and that and that there is hope, there is optimism. And, and Calvin and I are ready, right, Calvin, to lead capitalism practiced fairly. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's why as a law professor, I teach classes called corporate justice and um, other things, because I believe there's, there's lawyers and students that really want to march into a new era of, of economic equality and economic opportunity. But, Dre, I've been saying since the very beginning of this show, and even before that, before I was doing this show, that we are seeing conservatism in its death throes. And that's not necessarily a good thing because it's going to take us all down with it. Do you think that's the same thing when it comes to white supremacists? That, sure, we might be seeing the very last vestiges of white supremacy, but it's going to take us all down with it. That was a question for Dre, by the way. Are you still there, Dre? Dre. Uh, so sorry. So sorry. Still here. Um, apologize. I had muted myself. Um, so let me try and recreate the really genius thing that I was just starting <laughs> to say. Um, yeah. So, so to, to the to the extent to the extent that since I think 1996 is that right, Chuck? That's how long you've been on the air. Yes. Since 1996, you've been saying it's a it's a movement that's dying. There's more of us than there are of them. You know, I, I just I just you know I just have to believe, um, I, and I do believe that, um, you know, the, those that are wealthy and those that are entrenched and those that are powerful will not give it up willingly. 
And so it's been a 25 year journey that you're talking about where we've seen the likes of the entrenched, the powerful, the wealthy, those that, that are, you know, that, that are, are white supremacists that, that just are so unwilling to give that power up. Um, so I think, I think it's about movements, Chuck. I think, you know, you, you bring so many guests on your show that are into the movement. Um, and I, and I think it comes down to, you know, uh, Professor Anastasia Bowles and I started a new center at the law school called the Center for Racial Justice. And, and believe it or not, Walmart has, has contributed, you know, over a million dollars to our center. Um, Walmart is headquartered in Arkansas and believes that, you know, according to their CEO, that systemic, uh, discrimination should be ended or systemic racism and oppression. So, so, so I think the strange bedfellows that exist today, um, you know, uh, well, I think we're at a tipping point, I guess, is my point. I think that your hope since 1996 is going to either be realized here in the next year or two, or we're going to, we're going to be just severely divided as a country. I've got one last question for each of you, two separate questions. We have been speaking with law scholars, Andre Douglas Pond Cummings and Calvin Graham, about their co-authored article in the Tulsa Law Review, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine Sharecroppers. Elaine Sharecroppers. And as Calvin knows, and I believe you know, Dre, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Dre, let's start with you. You write, following the outbreak of COVID-19, which has disproportionately affected Black, Indigenous, and other minority communities, millions of people took to the streets to protest the continued police killings of unarmed Black people and the myriad injustices of modern U.S. capitalism generally. National Guardsmen and heavily milita- militarized police forces were immediately mobilized to put down the protests back in 2020, which were largely organized by Black Lives Matter and its allies. Then in January 2021, a publicly pre-planned insurrection at the Capitol building encountered little official resistance and managed to quickly gain entry by storming up the same steps that had months earlier been guarded by military personnel and armored vehicles during Black Lives Matter protests. It is clear from the disparate official responses, which posed the greater threat to racial capitalism status quo, that there would even be a difference in responses, not surprising given the economic and social reality of the United States in 2021. So Dre, our protests by unarmed black Americans, a greater threat to the United States as perceived by our government than protests by armed white Americans. And if so, to you, what does that reveal about the United States today? That is a terrific question from Hal. Um, yes, I think that has to be the case that, that at least that at least those in the seat of power currently, or at least in the seat of power at the time, um, the President Trump administration, that unarmed black protesters represented a greater threat to their view of democracy than armed white nationalist or white supremacist protesters that stormed the Capitol. So what does that say about America? What does that say about us today? Um, we, we, we have work to do, Chuck. We, we still have 
we still have work to do. You know, Calvin and I worked really hard uh, to write this article, not, not just to navel gaze, um, but because we believe that we can be a part, we believe that we can be a part of exposing this education and leading truly activist movements towards greater equality and economic opportunity. So while I think that unarmed Black Americans, at least to the former administration, represent a greater threat to democracy than armed white supremacists, I still hold true to the belief that that is the, those that storm the Capitol are the minority in this country, and I believe they're this they're that they're loud, and there are many of them, but they are a a a significant minority um, compared to to all of the people that I interact with and that I um, that I um, plan and and work with that that believe in economic opportunity, that believe in economic equality, and believe that that this country has has an opportunity to get to its ideals of land of the free and home of the brave. So, Calvin, my question from hell for you, and I've been looking forward to asking you a question from hell for years, mm-hmm. what happens if the January 6th hearings never have any mention of white supremacy and racial capitalism? Um, unfortunately, I think that it goes the way that we've seen um, the history of the history of the history of both the Tulsa massacre and Elaine massacre play out of an immediate sort of whitewashing after the incident um, that will later require the hard work of historians and um, those that were alive at the time to remind us of what actually happened and um, what forces were actually at play. But the official narratives have have never been, um, I think, true to the way that events have played out and the way that, um, you know, especially the events in Tulsa and Elaine played out. And it requires the people um, to really set the record straight. And just one thing I wanted to mention that you write about that blew my mind and I think really reveals my own whiteness is that when it comes to cities being named Cairo or here in Illinois, it's pronounced Cairo for whatever ridiculous reason, in Memphis, those those cities aren't named after that because the people who founded those cities were fascinated just by Egypt and its ancient history, but they wanted to create another Egypt with the same kind of slavery that Egypt mm. had. So I think when people may be going on their summer vacations this year and driving down the road and see the names of towns that are named after town cities in Egypt, like Alexandria, I think it's something to remember. It's an artifact of slavery. I cannot thank the two of you enough. Dre Cummings and Calvin Graham co-authored the Tulsa Review article, Racial Capitalism and Race Massacre. Go find this article and read it. It really blew my mind, and it really made me, again, learn, which is the most important thing that we do here on This Is Hell. Thank you both so much for being on the show. And Calvin, thank you so much for dropping off the Law Review here at Carrie's Lounge. Truly appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. All right, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Take care. So, you are, I told you that was going to blow your mind. It freaked me out. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. If that conversation with Dre and Calvin on racial capitalism and the Tulsa and Elaine massacres uh, made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly 
bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can support completely listeners supported. This is Hell. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how a few of our listeners are responding. This week's question from Hell is... What is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? What is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? Also, the uh, the implication is that there's no atheists. I don't know. I love the question from hell. It's just, <laughs> it's just got a lot of implied stuff in there. Well, if you're an atheist, you get the fun to pretend you believe in God for just now. <laughs> oh, sweet. Oh, yeah, that's great. You're right. That is fun. It can be fun. Sure. Okay. Uh, our last response was Sarah M saying they would ban their god would ban headlamps, Michigan lefts, and car alarms. <laughs> Michigan left. If you don't know what I it is, know. look it up. It's the craziest <laughs> thing in the world. If you want to make a left, you have to make a right. It's insane. And if you go to Michigan, you better look it up before you go because that's how you get tickets. But go ahead. What other? That's uh, good to know. Are? I've never been to Michigan. <laughs> it's good, good for you. I didn't, I didn't know the Michigan left. Okay, they're in. H is uh, their god is banning mayonnaise for everyone else. <laughs> Spencer T, their god is banning feeling refreshed and happy when you wake up. Oh. <laughs> That's, That's kind of sad. All right. <laughs> their god of hell, I suppose. Yes. Uh, Brayden S says their god is banning anything that makes me uncomfortable in any way whatsoever. <laughs> Look, you're doing it already. <laughs> Annette K, what is your god banning? Or what is your god against that you want to see banned for everybody else? Annette K, their god is banning capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy. Huh. Thanks, Annette K's god. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ros- Rosario AC says their god is banning motorcycles that sound so, hor- so horrible that it seems they are in your ear. Yeah. And all those people put af- aftermarket uh, noisemakers on their cars that have been tooling around my neighborhood lately. <laughs> yeah, I hope my God bans that, too. <laughs> Jeffrey Z says that their ban- their God is banning cryptocurrency. <laughs> all right. Good luck with that. <laughs> David R. says that their God is banning corporate personhood. Okay. One more. One more from Mark S. says that what is their god against that they're banning? They want to see banned for everybody else. Their god is banning money. All right. <laughs> so uh, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, go- globby, gory this week in Rotten History. And Lindsay, in a couple of minutes, will be telling us who is our guest later on this week's show. On July 12, 1929, 93 years ago this week in North Platte, Nebraska, police responded to a domestic violence call at the Hummingbird Inn, a public lunchroom owned and operated by an African-American man named Louis Slim Seaman. The complaint was that Seaman, who lived in a space above the lunchroom, had beaten a woman who was living with him. Slim was given the choice of either paying a $100 fine or leaving town immediately. The $100 fine is, you know, leaving town immediately, I should say, is definitely not a choice you would be given today. And by the way, $100 in 1929 is worth a little over $1,700 today. 
Slim chose the leaving town option, but the next day police discovered that Seaman was in fact still in town. When the cops went back to the Hummingbird Inn to look for Slim, one of the police officers, a white former acting police chief named Edward Green, was shot and killed. Another cop found Seaman hiding in a crawl space under the ground floor. Never a good place to hide. After refusing to come out, Seaman died by a gunshot. The police later said that Slim Seaman had taken his own life, but among black people in the community, a rumor spread quickly that Seaman had, not surprisingly, been shot to death by a trigger-happy cop. As tensions rose, a mob of white people, including Ku Klux Klan members, assembled the next day and began circulating among the homes of black people, pounding on doors and warning the innocent law-abiding occupants to get out of town because Slim had not left and may have been killed by a trigger-happy cop now that KKK wanted all black residents to leave. Within hours, virtually all of North Platte, Nebraska's several dozen black residents hurriedly fled by foot, train, and car to the nearby cities of Grand Island in Lincoln, Nebraska, bringing only what they could carry and leaving behind their homes and other possessions, all of their wealth. The white people who chased them away were later tried for illegal eviction and intimidation, but all were acquitted, naturally. A county sheriff later affirmed his intention of kicking the black folks out of town. The sheriff said, quote, The idea is to keep them out. So think about that just for a moment as we just discussed with Dre and Calvin. A hundred years ago, white supremacy was openly accepted in the United States. Second, if you have a parent or a grandparent who is 93 years old, they were alive when that KKK could basically do whatever they wanted and was never held accountable for their crimes, including using methodical door-to-door violent intimidation against African-Americans without the police doing a damn thing about it. Third, if white supremacists have their say again, have their way again, we might be back in the exact same place where organized white supremacists can be forcing African-Americans or whoever they decide is not white enough. They can be physically intimidated to the point that their entire lives may be turned upside down due to the actions of a single individual or even perceived actions of a single, single individual. If we do not do something about white supremacy, do not be surprised if white supremacists behind this kind of crime will once again not be held accountable by the police or the law. Finally, there was a guy named Lewis Seaman who had the nickname Slim. Sure, it's possible Slim Seaman was skinny. It's also possible that Slim Seaman may have served in the U.S. Navy and was a skinny sailor. It's also possible that Slim Seaman described something else about Lewis Seaman. We'll never know. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Uh, well, I have that here, but I, I'm i just a little confused because I have a different Rotten History in my email for this week. Really? Yeah, it's about uh, two giant petroleum super tankers. Uh, let me look back at the date on this. July 12th. Yeah, that was last week's. <laughs> I read last week's, apparently. I never got this week's. Uh, uh, Ronaldo told me that he had sent it to me, and so I just looked up the most recent one. Whatever. Do you want me to read it? Sure, or, go ahead. Okay. I, this is the first time I've read it, I think. Um, on July 19th, 1979. It makes a lot more sense. 43 years ago today, 
near the islands of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean, just off the coast of Venezuela, the collision of two giant petroleum supertankers created the fifth largest oil spill in history and the largest ever to involve ocean-going ships. The Danish-built Greek oil tanker SS Atlantic Empress, en route from Saudi Arabia to Texas, had been blown off course by a thunderstorm and was sailing through the thick fog when it suddenly encountered another Greek tanker, the Aegean Captain. The two ships were about the same size and did not see each other in the fog until they were about 600 yards apart. Uh At that point, the Aegean Captain made a desperate turn to the left, but of course it was too late. The ships collided, causing a series of explosions. 27 crew members were killed, all but one of who were on the Atlantic Empress. Both vessels began burning and were abandoned by their surviving crews as firefighters of the Trinidad and Tobago Coast Guard heroically brought the blaze under control, with help from Dutch and German shipping experts. Amazingly, the Aegean captain amazingly suffered only minor leakage and was eventually towed into port with most of its oil cargo intact. But the other ship, the Atlantic Empress, was not so lucky. It kept burning and exploding for another two and a half weeks, and finally it sank, having dumped almost 300,000 tons of crude oil into the Caribbean. This was almost eight times the amount of oil spilled 10 years later by the Exxon Valdez. Wow. But the Atlantic Empress oil spill received much less media coverage than the later disaster, probably because most of its oil went down into the sea without reaching any shorelines. As a result, there was less public protest, fewer scientific studies were conducted, and long-term effects of the spill are still not really known. And that's this week's Rotten History, and not last week's Rotten History, as I read. You know what I believe happened with uh, Rotten History this week? I think that, because sometimes this happens with Gmail, uh, that it got shuffled into my spam folder, and I should have checked that as well. Uh, real quick, uh, I knew it in Gian Kappen, who uh, suffered minor leakage. Uh, and our guests next on our next show are going to be Joseph Fishkin and William E. Forbath, who will discuss their Boston Review article, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again. We must reject the legal liberalism that attempts to cordon off constitutional questions from democratic politics. It's an amazing article and the concept of legal liberalism and how uh, we changed from uh, progressivism to liberalism and now on to neoliberalism is going to be a fascinating conversation. By the way, join us this Saturday, July 23rd, for the celebration of Carrie's Lounge's 50th year in business. That will include the opening of the This Is Hell sponsored This Is Art art show, featuring, as it always does, art by listeners or suggested by listeners here of This Is Hell. And speaking of which, 26 years ago today, I did my very first show on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, and I want to thank WNUR for giving me, and this is how, the opportunity and 26 years of really outstanding support. So thanks to WNUR. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing Putting People Before Profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.